Hey, podcast listeners. Thanks for listening to the HBCU audio experience. On this episode, I talked to Xavier Peoples. Xavier Peoples has the ambition to raise a billion dollars for HBCUs, and he's doing it through his HBCU Change app. On this episode, we talk wealth and exactly how he plans on doing it. Hope you enjoy. All right, Xavier Peoples, founder of HBCU Change. Xavier, tell me and tell our audience who you are. I am Xavier Peoples, and as you said, I'm I'm the founder and CEO of HBCU Change. Um, my my daytime job, I work for a firm by the name of Capital Group, and we're the largest active money manager in the world. And as a part of that we manage some of the largest endowments and foundations literally in the world. And so because of that, I know that my firm has the tools and the resources that could truly help HBCUs. And so I went to the the head of my firm one day and I said, can you tell me how many HBCUs um, foundations and endowments that we manage? Because I, I feel that these schools can truly benefit from our resources. And the answer was zero. And so I took it upon myself to fly over the country, all over the country and talk to a couple of HBCUs just to get a better understanding of their endowments, their foundations. And all of them had the same response. Xavier, we would love to talk to you about our endowments and foundations and our returns uh, on our endowments and foundations. But the real crux of our issue is getting alumni to consistently give back to the institution. Can you help solve for that? And so I got back on a plane and I came home and I sent out a survey to 5,000 HBCU alum. And I asked them, why didn't they give back or why don't you give back on a consistent basis? The number one answer to that survey was, we don't give back because we've never been asked. Followed closely by we don't give back because we don't feel that we can give back a donation that will have an impact on the university. And that's when the light bulb went off with me being in in the investment space. I don't know if you're familiar with that by the name of Acorn, but Acorn basically rounds up the change from your daily transactions and then invest your change into the market. And I said, what if I can create an Acorn for HBCUs where we round up the change on a daily basis and we give that change back to the HBCU of our choice. And so upon further research, what we found was that on average, if a person connects both their debit and credit card to an app to give back to a cause, they give back on the low side, $54, on the high side, $87 a month, depending upon their transactions. So using a school like Clark Atlanta University here in Atlanta, um, Clark Atlanta has 40,000 active alumni. And so let's just say we were to get 10,000 of those alumni to sign on and give back to their school. That's $540,000 a month, over $6 million a year, going back to Clark Atlanta University, which will have a tremendous impact on the school. And so our goal and our mission is for schools to be self-sustained and not have to rely on government funding and sporadic checks from big donors to survive. They can survive off the change from their alumni alone, and that's what we aim to do. 
That's great. That's great. Let's let's go back. Give me a like a, a first comic book uh, story of who you are, like who where you're from, who you were as a kid, so I can get some context here. Sure. So um, I'm from Decatur, Georgia, which is right outside of a, of Atlanta. Um, from the hood, Glenwood, <laughs> if you will, but um, grew up in a, in a two-parent household. My, my parents have been married for over uh, forty-five years. Um, I am. I have one sister, and just like any other uh, traditional black family, grew up in a church. And with that, um, I think that really shaped my love for my people and my community, right? Because it was truly a village that helped raise my sister and I, my cousins, my friends, everyone, because we were in church almost every day of the week and that community poured into us on a consistent basis. And I realized how important my community was as a child to my ecosystem and to my growth into adulthood. Right, that makes sense. We got a lot in common. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, we're Shaker Heights, Ohio. So right outside of Cleveland. My parents, they just celebrated their 50th anniversary. And I got one sister. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so we got a lot in common. What was your first entrepreneurial venture? Cutting grass in the spring, raking leaves in the fall. But right. I, I'll tell you a quick story. There was a deacon at my church who I would go and uh, rake his yard. But his yard was huge. It had to be at least an acre and leaves covered the entire acre. And so I was out there one day raking leaves by myself. And literally, it probably would have taken me a month to rake up all those leaves. And he said, why won't you get some friends to come help you rake the leaves? You can get this done in a day. And I said, well, you know, this is what you're paying me and I want to keep all of the money. So I'd rather do it on my own. And he taught me how to be in business and to run a business. He said, I'll tell you what, go get you some friends, hire your friends. I'll pay you more. You pay them less and you keep the lion's share of the money. And from then on, I've been in business ever since 12 years old, learning how to use others and work with others to work towards a common goal and to make money. And so that's what I've been doing. That makes sense. It's a question that I've been like pondering for a while. And I have this conversation with friends of mine, entrepreneurial friends. Do you think entrepreneurs are born or built? I think they're definitely, mm, I think they're definitely born, but I think you can build one as well. Okay. 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 Um, you can build one, but not necessarily, you, you can't necessarily build a good entrepreneur because I think the, the grind is in you. You, yeah. you wake up in every, every every morning. You you know what your tasks are, and you would do anything to complete that task on a given day, come hell or high water. Whereas if you don't have that that spirit inside of you, you probably wouldn't be a good entrepreneur because you're going to reach hurdles every single day, and so right. you have to figure out how to either jump over that hurdle, go around that hurdle, or go under that hurdle to achieve your goal. And so if it's not in you, then you won't be successful at what you're doing. Right. I agree. I think if like the really great entrepreneurs are born, 
but certain entrepreneurs that are built, they can build a decent business, sure. but I don't think they can be get to that all time level. Absolutely. Yeah. So what uh, college did you go to? I went to the University of West Georgia. OK. And why not at, HBCU? Yeah. Why not an HBCU being in Atlanta with so, um it's funny that you, you, you asked that. So initially uh, coming out of high school, I went to a college by the name of Queens College in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was an athlete. Okay. And I played basketball. And then um, I, I went to the University of West Georgia to play. But when I got there, I realized that I wasn't going to the NBA and I did not want to play basketball anymore. And so I just got there and I finished there and finished out. But in addition to that, the school that I really wanted to go to coming out of high school was Morehouse, but we couldn't afford Morehouse. And so it was either um, take this scholarship for basketball or go to a, another type of school. And so um, I went to take that scholarship to, to a smaller Division two school and then transfer to University of West Georgia and finish there. Right. Okay. Now, um, with basketball, I was a basketball. That's another thing we got in common. That's were, were you a shooter? Absolutely. I yeah. am too. I, I had, a, I had a feeling. It's it's something I'm gonna tell you, and this is gonna be weird. You've never heard this before. Okay. I was talking. I was talking to my dad, and I said, "You can tell where somebody comes from as a basketball player if they have straight teeth." <laughs> And can shoot the basketball. They usually came from a solid home. <laughs> and I was and I was talking about J.R. Smith with you know J.R. Smith tries to act tough and all that, but he comes from a super solid home. That straight teeth can shoot, man. It's, it's crazy. It's just something <laughs> something that I noticed, man. It's, you know, <laughs> take it at you, man. But yeah, it's a fact, isn't it? It's a yeah. fact. You know? <laughs> So what do you say to someone who questions like a, a non HBCU grad taking a lead in raising money for HBCUs? Well, you know, I, first and foremost, I'm black before I'm anything. And, and what I understand is how important HBCUs are to the black ecosystem and to the black economy. Without HBCUs, I think uh, black people don't make nearly the strides that we made. We've made in this country so far. And so um, what people who would question that, what I would say is, number one, I love black people. I love my community. I, I love who we are and what HBCU stands for. Um, that's A. B, I come from a, a family and a lineage of HBCU alums. So my father went to Savannah State University. My wife uh, went to Spelman. I have cousins that went to Albany State, Bethune-Cookman. Uh, family and friends, and, and the list goes on. And so um, I, I would like to say that, you know, I understand HBCUs and I'm black. I love my people. I love my right. I know what it is. Right. That that makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Um, give me a quick walkthrough of your career so far. So after you so you went to um, West Georgia. Went to West Georgia. My, my first job out of college was at, actually at the Federal Reserve Bank. So, so what, I, was your, what was your major at West Georgia? Finance. Okay. Finance. Okay. So uh, my, my whole life I've been in, in banking and finance. So uh, I started off at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta here in, here in Atlanta. Um, 
I interned there and then they hired me on. So I worked there for about four years. Transitioned from the Federal Reserve Bank, went over to Wachovia, personal banker. Um, but it, it had some investment um, element to the job. And so that's why I took the job. And then I moved out to San Francisco for five years. And I, I worked for a bank by the name of Union Bank of California. Did some credit analysis during a credit crisis. That was like one of those grunt jobs. Moved back here to Atlanta. And I worked for a firm by the name of Zurich North America. I don't know if you're familiar with Zurich, but Zurich is their insurance company. But I was the regional finance director there for Zurich for three years. And the funny story is, so right now I'm in what you call the ultra high net worth space. There are not many African-Americans in the ultra high net worth space. And that is um, the ultra high net worth space is a space where you manage money for individuals with a minimum of $5 million or more. And so I had a buddy when I was working at Zurich who was at U.S. Trust, which is the private wealth group of Bank of America. And he just moved here from New Jersey and he called and he said, hey, man, can, can you help me out? Um, can you introduce me to some high net worth individuals in Atlanta? And so I, I made some introductions for him. And it turns out that he closed a couple of deals that I referred to him and his boss said, hey, I want to meet your friend. And literally um, his, his boss was a brother. His name is Mark Adams. Um, he's a unit. Mark Adams is, is a unicorn because there aren't any black executives or very few black executives in the private banks at any of these major banks. And so he was intentional about hiring young brothers and giving them the opportunity to make the money that other folks were making in the industry as well. And so he hired myself and four other brothers. And he said, listen, I'm either going to sink or swim with you guys, because if y'all don't work out, they're going to get me out of here and get y'all out of here, too. But we went in. We all did very well. And um, and so we're all flourishing in the hot network space now. And so now I work for Capital Group, which is the largest active money manager in the world, like I said, and um, I'm doing very well there. Right. That's awesome. That's another thing that we have in common. My first job was in banking. Nice. Uh, you know, out of school. So, you know, I couldn't take it for too long. So after a year and a half, I, you know, I started to do my own thing. So it's a grind, man. It's a grind. Yeah. I, I tell um, everyone, particularly being in the uh, private wealth space, is not for the faint of heart. Right. But, um, but if you're good at it and you can do it, you can do very well. Right. Makes sense. Now, how did HBCU change come about? And I'm going to tell you something before you start telling me how it came about. I can tell that you've been working on it for a while. Yes. Because people have come to me with your idea. OK. That are in Atlanta. OK. So I have a feeling that you get around. Yeah. You know, a lot of people know you. And they've heard you talking yep. and they thought that they could come to me, you know, and, and, and we could we could do it. So I can I know you've been grinding. That's a, that's a great thing. I've been at this for over two years, yeah. uh, working on this project for over two years. But but the thing is, it's, it's kind of like that question that you asked earlier about um, is uh, entrepreneur built or born? The, the reality is when something is for you, it's for you. 
other people can go and try to steal your ideal. They can try to duplicate it, but they can't do it like you can do it. And so um, what you will see, and I don't know if you have the opportunity to download the app yet, but this app is excellence through and through. And it's done right because what I understand is that um, the black consumer is a tough consumer. Okay. And, and you know, and they know they expect a lot from you and more that they would probably expect from someone else. And so I wanted to take my time and do this right and make sure that when you open this app and when you download this app, you're downloading something like a cash app, you're downloading something like a acorn. The quality is there. The security is there. Everything is there. The customer service is there. Everything is there through and through. You have nothing to worry about when it comes to this application because it's excellence through and through. And so other people think they, that they can do what, what you're doing, but they have no idea what it takes to pull something like this off and have the success that we've had so far. Right. Yeah. And everybody, the three people that have come to me, none of them had any follow through. And that's normal when people try to take other people's ideas. Sure. They have they don't have that energy to see it through and then they don't know how to see it through. And this is a cash intensive. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know who it is, but listen, I promise you, man, this costs a lot of money. Yeah. If you're going to if you're going to do it right, this is not something that you can do for ten thousand dollars. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So. You know, you say it's capital intensive and I know just building something is hard. And I know just like the story that you told earlier, you tried to go rake leaves with just yourself, but you had to go get someone else. Sure. What does your team look like and how did you build that in building HBCU Challenge? So I've surrounded myself with a phenomenal team, uh, all HBCU grads, by the way. Awesome. <laughs> uh, but we are led by um we, we call him the og of the team his, his name is tommy dorch and um mr dorch has a um uh, a long history of supporting hbcus um supporting black causes period and so he is kind of our true captain if you will i'm a ceo but but he's the captain of the ship um and then we have a gentleman by the name of uh rufus montgomery um, Rufus is set on the boards of several HBCUs as well as being executive at HBCUs. And then my marketing team, um, a gentleman by the name of Jay Carter, who went to Florida A&M University, Steve Canal and, and Troy Brown. And so um, we have a phenomenal team, uh, a team that is, have a, had a history of giving back to HBCUs over and over again, millions of dollars back to HBCUs. And so they believe in me. They believe in the app. And so we're going to push forward as a unit to truly achieve our goal of raising a billion dollars for HBCUs in five years. Right. That's awesome. And I've heard three or four of those names in passing. I don't know them well, but uh, Steve Canal kind of stands out to me a little bit. Yes. But, um, you know, everyone has done well, maybe because I went to Florida a and as well. Okay. You know, you so know, you, that, what year did you graduate from Florida A&M? 06. Okay. So, yeah. So, Jay, Jay is a bit older than you, but Jay Carter is a very popular alum okay. at Florida A&M University. He does a, a, the largest uh, music festival, black music festival in the country by the name of One Music Fest. Okay. Here in Atlanta, and it's over 
50,000 African-Americans that attend one music fest. And so right. that's the claim to fame, what he's known that's for. A, that's a big deal. Now, yeah. what goes in the building in app or the HBCU change app to be specific? Um, I think first and foremost, you, you have to get you a, a, a good developer. Uh, my developer, I want to give him a shout out. His name is Troy Wilson. Um, Troy is, is a phenomenal developer, phenomenal designer. So that's, that's first and foremost. You have to get someone who knows exactly what they're doing. Um, I, I made some mistakes early on. Uh, a lot of times you get people who say that they're developers, but then they try to form out the work to someone overseas and then it comes back and it's not done right. right. You need to get, if you're going to build out an app, you need to get someone who's going to actually be doing the work themselves and know how to build and do it themselves. So that that's one. Number two, um, I have a great legal team as well. Okay. Because you, you need to make sure that, you know, everything is properly trademarked and things of that nature and that you're um, protecting yourselves from any liabilities that may be out there. Um, and then most importantly, um, you have to have a dynamic marketing team because, you know, we, 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 Put out these big numbers and saying a billion dollars in five years well you have to have this marketing team that's going to help you achieve um getting users to download the app so you can achieve that big number and so um it's just a combination of having the right te team members in the right places at the right time and that's all working as a unit to achieve this ultimate goal right now how do you how do you market this because it's a lot of stuff that comes across our desk on a daily basis. Like we see, you know, just hundreds of things people pitching. Sure. And, you know, so I got a like a keen eye for bullshit. And when yours came across, I had already heard of what you were doing. Sure. So you were doing, you were in the right marketing channels already. You probably had multiple touch points. And then the people that were reaching out, we're doing it in the right way. So how do you look at marketing? Do you look at it as going broad and traditional? Do you go new school and just social media? So give me a how you look at marketing from a broad view and then some tactics if you want to. I think first and foremost, um, it's very akin to like a presidential campaign. Okay, so you first and foremost, you do grassroots. You want to meet the people where they are. And that is... Um, you as you and your team, you use your network and the influencers in your network to build a brand and get the brand out there. Because what that does, first and foremost, that builds trust. You want to you want people to actually trust that what you're coming up with um, isn't some bullshit, if you will. Excuse my language. And then from there, you build out your ambassadors of of your brand. And these are the people who go out and they have followings and, and their followings trust them to go out and market your brand. And then you overlay all that with just traditional social media marketing and things of that nature. And right. it's a perfect storm that kind of keeps it in everyone's face. Yeah, you get it all the way, Xavier. <laughs> you, you, to, you totally get it. Now, your goal is to raise a billion dollars. How do you plan to do that? Well, um, there are 103 HBCUs. And so based on the data that we have, where we're saying that the, the average person now, that was pre pre COVID. So, you know, people aren't moving around as much as they used to, but 
based on the data that we have, we actually believe that we can achieve that number in shorter than five years, but we gave ourselves five years to achieve that number. Um, what we're thinking is, with, particularly with the larger schools, um, with the larger alumni bases, um, using that kind of 10,000 um, alumni number, we should be able to raise a significant amount of money with those schools in a short period of time. Yeah, I, def and, I definitely agree. Yeah, so um, I think it's very achievable. And really, to be honest with you, being in the endowment and foundation space, I actually believe that a billion dollars is a low number. When, when you talk about these notable schools having endowments of two billion, three billion, seven billion, right? And I'm talking about a hundred schools, a total of a hundred schools, raising a billion dollars for a total of hundred schools when one school has seven billion, I think it's very attainable. Right. I was reading somewhere where I think all the HBCUs, their total endowment is like two point something billion just Correct. total. And then uh, what is Harvard's 58 or 38, right. something like that. It's like a 20, 30 times the endowment. So this can be, you know, game changing for um, for HBCUs. And then I think part of building something is knowing your weaknesses. Sure. One of my weaknesses is talking to institutions. Yep. How do you get HBCUs on board? Because there's a lot of bureaucracy within HBCUs. Understood. And, and so... I have a dynamic team that has relationships at literally all 103 schools. And so literally, if, if I were to pick up the phone and call any of these schools, um, I think I think the schools will have a conversation. But with the team that I have and experience that they have with HBCUs, it's a different conversation when my team picks up the phone and they call these schools. And so it's all about who you know and who can and who they respect. And so when certain people on my team make those phone calls, it gets done and it gets done quickly. Do you think it has something to do with name? Like you have a good name. Xavier people sounds like it's about to do some business. Do you think do you think black people, we need to be more intentional in how we're naming our children? No, listen, <laughs> no, not at all. I think life is all about relationships. It is. I had a conversation with someone probably about an hour ago, and she was talking about how her daughter was struggling in school. And I was explaining to her, I said, listen, um, the average GPA of all CEOs in America right now is a 2.3 GPA. That's a fact. I'm right on. I'm right on par. And, and, so, <laughs> and so what I was explaining to her was I said, listen. Just give you, I mean, school is important, but I think it's all about having the ability to navigate through this world and network your your way through this world because you're only as good as your network, who you know and who knows you. And so I figured that out early on. And so that's why I can graduate from the University of West Georgia and out of prestigious PWI or prestigious historically black college and university and still have the success that I have in life because I have a network that can help me navigate through life. That's right. Now working with um, these high net worth individuals, give me a common theme that you see that makes them successful. Is it work ethic? 
Some yes, some no. Um, majority of the of I, I don't want to in a broad brush that just because because majority of them have inher- inherited the money, so it's generational wealth. But I don't want to paint the broad stroke of just because they inherited the money doesn't mean that they don't work hard or they're not smart because for everyone that I've worked with or that I'm currently working with at this time, these people are brilliant people who work hard every single day. And so um, I would say that the common thread is they know where to go get the answers. Okay. So if they don't know, they have the resources or they know how to go get the resources to get the answer to whatever their issue is that can make them successful. Right. I think that that's the common thread and the key to their success. Again, that goes back to networking as well. If you have the resources and the access to the information, you have a better opportunity of being successful. And I think that that's the common thread of all wealthy families that I deal with. Right. What do you think? I'm hearing a lot of black people talk about generational wealth and passing Mm -hmm. money on to their kids. The data says that 90% of millionaires are self-made. Okay. What do you think of that? Should we be focusing more on leaving money or assets to our children or should we be more focused on teaching them things that we wish we would have known it's a great question i think um i think it's not an either or i think it's a both and okay um the single and easiest way to create generational wealth and give wealth to your children is by life insurance. Okay. Yes. Um, so, so that's number one. And I, and I have to say that out loud, but then also it's not as hard as most people think it is either. And, and what I tell people all the time is, um, the, the fundamentals of finance is this budget saving investing. When we, when we talk budgeting, um, the goal is for you to set a realistic budget, not to just budget, but set a realistic budget. Okay. When we talk about saving, the goal is to pay yourself first. So before you pay a bill, you pay yourself by putting money into your saving account. I don't care if it's $10, whatever it is. And then, Ultimately, you want to get to the point where you can invest. And so if you can figure out those three different principles, particularly starting off with the budgeting and setting a realistic budget, get to where you can save and build up a nest egg and then ultimately where you can invest. If you invest over time, understanding that you have a time horizon with compounded interest, you should have something for you and your kids in the end. And, you know, it's hard for me to say that because obviously people um, in this world at different income levels, 
but I think life is all about relativity, right? And so um, you can adjust your life and your budget. Just because a person makes a million dollars doesn't mean that the person that makes $40,000 wouldn't be able to save the same amount of money that a person that has a million dollars because typically a person that has a million dollars has high overhead. And so they may be living above their means nine times out of 10 anyway. So the person that has the 40,000, they realized how to live off of a tight budget anyway. And so they may actually have the ability to save more money than that person who makes more money. And so just understanding that, you can give yourself a, a, a chance at success when it comes to long-term saving and investing. You do a good job of breaking complex things down simply. Do you think that ability to communicate and break things down to lower common denominator really helps you in what you do professionally and building an organization? Absolutely. Because I think, um, Another key to success is just meeting people where they are. And so, um, you know, I meet these very smart people all the time, every day, and they can't even explain to me on um, on an adult or on a kid level, for that matter, what they do. (laughs) So I have a I have a 10 year old, a seven year old and a five year old and a lot of times when I'm practicing presentations, I practice talking to them because if they can understand it, then anybody can understand it. Right. That's what it's all about. So now, you know, when, when your kid is saying, so dad, what's, what does that mean? Dad, what's, what does that mean? I have to continue continuously refine what I'm saying so they can understand it and give those type of analogies. So I know now if they can get it, anybody can get it. Right. That, that makes a lot. Let's make a lot of sense. Um, how does HBCU change make money? So um, that's a great question. So literally, we make pennies or a penny on a transaction. This is truly a, a, a purpose-driven project. Okay, and so um, majority. So the out of the money that we raise, the schools receive eighty-three percent of what we raise. HBCU change. Uh, receives 17%. But majority of that 17% goes towards the platforms that we're sitting on because it's important. Security is the most important thing when it comes to these platforms. And so we've chosen the best platforms, Plaid and Stripe, which are platforms that your online banking sits on, that Cash App sits on. And so a lot of the major apps that you know, they sit on these platforms. And so that's where majority of our money goes and we'll figure out how to make money later. Right now we're all about the mission. Right. That makes sense. I was um, dealing with Stripe the other day because with the amount of money that we do, they said you can get your money sooner, mm-hmm. but to get your money sooner. We got, we're going to take 1%. And I was talking to the team. I'm like, man, if we run up a hundred million, that's a million dollars they're going to take from us. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of money, but a little a little goes a long way. So Absolutely. I appreciate you breaking that down and being transparent about exactly how it goes. You know, because a lot of times if you're not transparent, people are okay with anything as long as you're transparent with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so 
transparency is the key. Um, even even with our schools, we have a dashboard set up with the schools, and so literally everything that we see on our side, the schools see on their side, and so through and through, there's transparency all the way through on both sides. And then another point I want to make is we don't take possession of the money. The right. the money goes directly to the schools, and uh, and then the school can extract that money out of their Stripe account to their account, and that that's how it works. Right. I don't know how old you are, Xavier, but I'm going to ask you a couple questions that just been on my mind this week. Sure. And really, the last couple of years, but this week, a couple of them. Tupac or Biggie? Tupac. Jordan or LeBron? Jordan. It's not. Is it? Is it even a question? No, not at but, all. But so many young guys talk to me about how much better LeBron was. And I'm like, you guys didn't see Jordan, but you should have respect for the people that understand the game of basketball and tell you that Jordan was on a, another level. Now, LeBron is, you know, the real deal. Love LeBron. Sure. But he, he's not Mike. He's not Mike. And you are from Cleveland saying that. Come on, yeah. y'all. Y'all hear this, man? <laughs> yeah. You know, I was – when I used to see Mike in person, I used to, you know, wear bull stuff. You know, how could you not be a Jordan yeah. fan? You know, right. wrong, you know. Um, how can people find you online? You can find me at on Instagram, Xavier underscore peoples. Okay. Um, Facebook. You can find us on Instagram at HBCU Change, mm-hmm. uh, LinkedIn, all major platforms, Twitter. We're there everywhere. What do you wish? I had asked you that I haven't yet. Where to go to download the app. That is. There we go. Great. That was a good one. Apple App Store, the the Google Play Store. Um, You can go on our website, hbcuchange.com, and download. I think, you know, this is all about group economics right here us giving a little change, everybody pitching in to make sure that our schools are self-sustainable. This is what this is all about. And so if we can get an all-hands-on-deck approach, we can do something phenomenal that will revolutionize how we give back to our schools going forward. And this will be a story to tell in history. I'm trying to make history with this. That's what this is all about. I feel real good about this. Now, it's some, this is something I rarely do. I can't say never because I've done it before. Um, ask me a question because when I get thoughtful leaders sure. that have, you know, understand of what's going on in the world and you understand branding and all that, I'm going to give you a chance to ask me a question. Okay. I'm actually going to, we're going we're gonna to talk about politics a little bit. There we go. All right. As a black man, do you feel that black men are left out of the conversation on both the Democrat and the Republican Republican side? Definitely. And when you just look at history, nothing, no president, no politics, no policies have ever done anything to increase or help the black plight and the black plight is headed by the black man. Mm-hmm. So, definitely. What okay. about you? Do you think so? No, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, a lot of people were upset with 
when Puff said, um, you know, we're holding the vote hostage. And then I think Ice Cube came out and said the same thing last mm-hmm. week. But I, I was talking to someone and I said, I think subconsciously what Ice Cube and Puff was saying was that we don't see ourselves in any of these platforms. And so why should we vote for something that we don't even see ourselves in? I think black women, um, the Democrats have done a good job of speaking to black women and, and, and cultivating black women, but I don't necessarily think that they've done a good job of speaking to black men and cultivating black men to get them to support them totally like they have for black women. Because black women have, have definitely held down the Democratic Party, but I think that's because black women see a space for them in a party, but I don't know if black men necessarily see a space for themselves in the Democratic Party. And I think that they need to do a better job of speaking to black men and speaking to black issues, black men issues, if you will. Um, I, to- I totally agree. I totally agree with you. And you put that very eloquently. And I was thinking, do you think black women and black LGBTQ put those issues, the female issues, and the LGBTQ issues above black issues? No. Um, I've seen people say that, but I think um, before they're anything, they're black. And um, I, I've seen it cut both ways. But, but I think the reality is that when you are part of a um, subset of a group, it's just like anything else. The, the squeaking wheel gets the oil. Yeah. And so um, I think they raise their hand and they raise their voices because they want their issues and their concerns heard. And people may take it as if they put their subsect in front of their blackness when in in actuality they're not doing that they're just saying hey i'm here do you see me right that's right right makes sense did you see that they uh said jeff bezos is uh worth 200 billion and the first person to be worth 200 billion and then somebody brought up to me that mansa musa who was the uh, head of the mali empire was worth 400 billion yeah. And I was just thinking about how much they really rewrite history with how they tell what was going on. And I think it's important for us to kind of control the narrative and in media. We really take that really seriously of pushing the black narrative out here, but not in a just a perfect way. We want to push it in an authentic way. And I think we need to really take back that and really, really be intentional about what images we put out there. I think you're spot on with that. You know, since the George Floyd killing, I've learned so much about black people, black culture, and I consider myself to be a red, a well-read person that I didn't know before. And so um, what we have to do is a better job of educating ourselves, educating our little ones on who we are as a people. So when they go out, in this tough world, 
they can go out with the confidence that they have the ability to conquer as well. And so your, your image of the richest man in the world isn't Jeff Bezos. Right. It, it can be someone who looks just like you. I thought right. it was so phenomenal online. Was it yesterday that everyone was posting how Tyler Perry became a billionaire? Yeah. Uh, because even, you know, myself, it gives me hope that one day that I can attain the same type of a, um, success that Tyler Perry has, has gained as well. And so um, President Obama, I mean, uh, the list goes on um, outside of our brothers that, that hoop and entertain. There are right. other ways for you to be successful as well. So that's what that's about. And even for adults, it's not just for kids. It's, it's for us, too. You know, because we're on this grind every single day. You're, you're on the grind. You have your businesses and, and, and you want to build your businesses to be successful. We need to see the Tyler Perry's of the world so we can know that, hey, we have an opportunity and it's in reach for us as well. Right. And we need to have more discussions like this. We need to really pull back that curtain and say, hey, this is exactly how it's done. Yeah. And, um, you know, so brothers like you and, you know, some other brothers, we need to, you know, consistently have conversations and put it out here and then document this because there's never been another generation that could document what they've done in building. You almost well, you had to be a celebrity for them to document your life. Now we can kind of control it and we can put it out on YouTube and it lives forever. We can put it out in podcast form. So I'm thinking about doing a podcast just about just black businesses, sure. you know, just putting out there, just really giving the game. So if I do that, hopefully I'll have your support. Absolutely. Xavier Peoples, this was great. This was hey, great. Man. Awesome. I think, I think HBCU change is the most simplistic way for people to donate to HBCUs without even without having to think about it. And they can do it in a way that's not going to truly affect their lifestyle. Right. You don't a lot of people think I got a, a thousand or two. I don't have it. But 56 to 84, I know I'm probably getting your numbers messed up. Like that's that's doable. That's yep. doable. We, we can do and, that. All we can. So even if you want to just give 20 or 25 dollars. Right. You know, uh, whatever it is, give something. Right. You know, and something is, is better than nothing. And um, these schools need you. So Definitely. let's do our part just a little bit at a time. Um, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Um, the true call to action is as we see things that are going on in the world, particularly for black people, I think that we need to figure out a way if we want to get big corporations attention. We need to figure out a way to become self-sustainable when where we're not relying on them. And that's what HBCU change is all about. Getting these schools not to have to rely on big donations from big corporations and government funding as well, because government funding can be cut just as well as anything else can be cut. And so we need to be self-sustainable so we can show the world that we can do this on our own and truly get their attention. That's what this is all about. Didn't they say the Asian population votes the least? They have the something like that, but they're self-sustainable. They don't really need politics. Do you think we need to look at their culture and, and how we operate? Or is you know, is it totally different with them being, you know, from an Asian descent or we're from African descent? Um, I think that um 
I'm always careful to say that, um, you know, we need to be like another culture. What I will say is there are definitely some principles from their culture that we can take. And, and that is um, spending money with ourselves, banking black. Yes. There are black insurance companies insuring black. Um, being black through and through. The seed money that I received from HBCU Change came from a black bank. Awesome. And so HBCU Change is black through and through. And yeah. so this is a bank. I couldn't have gone to any other big bank and they wouldn't have given me a loan for this app. But this black bank saw my vision, believed in my vision, believed in HBCUs, and said, hey, Xavier, we're going to give you this to go and start this business because we believe it. I would have gotten that anywhere else. That's a great place to end this. Yep. Xavier, if you ever need anything, we're always going to be here for you. And we really, really, really appreciate you what you're doing and then taking the time to talk to us. All right. Thank you, man. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Xavier. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you haven't done so already, text us, text HBCU to 91096 to join our text community. Catch you on the next episode.